You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement as the turtles got back in the 1980s, as Jerry likes to put it. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your appetite to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode, which was also with Richard, where we shared our thoughts on pyramiding and defining non-linearity when discussing trend-following models. Rich, great to be back with you um, this week as well. How are things going down under? Yeah, very good news. Um, as, as I mentioned last week, in Queensland here, we've been very lucky in managing this COVID Delta virus, but some of the other states around Australia haven't been so fortunate. So New South Wales... They had a policy of uh, of not attacking the virus as soon as it sort of entered their state, and due to that sort of lag that they had in their their attacking that virus, it, it spread very very quickly throughout New South Wales, and so there's this border blocking New South Wales and Queensland, which is being highly sort of um, surveilled at the moment, and um, I suppose it's only a matter of time before Delta gets into our state, but. With this suppression that we've had, we've been fortunate enough to allow our economy to tick over quite nicely. And with some of the other states that also have zero cases, uh, we've been able to get a fair bit of domestic um, interstate travel going to help some of the tourism operators and things like that. But of course, our international tourism operators are having a very hard time and anyone that relies on this sort of inter international trade. But it's very interesting looking at the way the different states are managing all of this. It's a bit of a jigsaw over here in Australia. And uh, so we've got these, these uh, the warlords of the states at the moment all doing their own thing. And, uh, you know, I, I think the people in general are sort of are voting with their feet saying, uh, we like that uh, they're looking after us sort of. Um, so we'll see how it fares. Yeah, without a doubt, uh, you know, COVID has certainly been handled differently between various countries in Europe as well. I noticed that yesterday, actually, my birth country of Denmark announced that all COVID restrictions will be removed completely on the 10th of September. So now they're declaring essentially that it is now kind of just, just in, in quotation, a normal disease. So that is, of course, good news if you uh, live up in the Nordic countries. Now, before I um, go on and talk a little bit about this week in, in review, uh, let me just, as always, acknowledge those of you who took time and left a rating and review this week. We so appreciate this. They really do help. And uh, I can only encourage every one of you who have not yet left a rating and review on iTunes to uh, maybe spend five, 10 minutes of your time to help us out. Now, this week ended with an quote-unquote everything rally, a risk-on day, as the financial media likes to call it, where nearly all asset prices closed the session higher 
stock prices, bond prices, commodity indices, grain, soft, precious metals, forex, bitcoin, base metals, and the entire energy complex. They all rallied uh, yesterday, Friday. Most likely, this uh, was a result of Jerome Powell's turning ever so mildly dovish in his comments at the virtual Jackson Hole Central Bank meeting on Friday. But despite a number of the U.S. bankers calling for an immediate halt to the open market purchases, the chairman said that open market committee is likely to commence tapering before the end of 2021. It seems like the markets had set themselves up for a more hawkish kind of language, with some looking for an announcement that taper would begin as soon as September. Now, while the Fed doesn't always look to the calendar in making policy announcements, the chairman may have realized that doing so on a Friday uh, or the last Friday in August could rock the markets, but instead the treasuries traded pretty quietly sideways, which was enough to drive the S&P and other equity indices to another record high. With the news wires busy with the mess in Afghanistan, President Biden's stimulus package, and of course COVID, the general public seems to have forgotten that the U.S. is facing yet another debt ceiling, and that is expected to arrive in the coming weeks. Negotiations, at least how I remember them, uh, about raising the debt ceiling can become quite intense, so perhaps this is something to pay attention to. Now, next week, the August or the U.S. August employment report is out on Friday, and that is the day before a U.S. three-day weekend. But if you're active in the U.S. markets, as many of us are, Note that Friday will be a full trading day, and it could turn out to be a volatile one depending on the report itself. Let me just bring you in, Rich, again, and just touch maybe on some of the things. Uh, yeah, it's only been a week this time since you were on last, so maybe you haven't noticed too many too many new things. But, uh, of course, um, I don't know if there's anything that caught your attention this week. No, look, it's it's been one of these up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down sessions. It, it, it's very much like the kangaroo song over here with my portfolio over the last, you know, month or so. But, you know, uh, the Aussie dollar that was doing well last week has uh, come off a bit. My energies are doing very nicely, especially natural gas, but crude and Brent are also doing nicely. The indices are sort of creeping ahead, um, still, you know, but... Going higher and higher and higher. When that will end, no one knows. But that's about it for my portfolio. The rest is just this up, down, up, down, up, down story. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. On our side, actually, from where we sit, the markets are returned, I should say, to kind of their longer-term trends uh, this week. And that's certainly something that we benefited on in our trend-following strategies. And in many respects, it was kind of reverse of the week before um, the best sectors this week uh, was energies and equities, where we saw some positive contributions from pretty much all the markets in those sectors. Softs and grains also added a bit of performance this week, as did volatility in currencies. The only sector that had a small negative contribution on our side was really the fixed income markets. And actually, specifically, it came from the short-dated Australian bonds, Rich. So you need to, uh, need to sharpen up there. Anyways, metals were pretty flat uh, this week for us. In terms of volatility, the quote-unquote well-anticipated virtual central bank meeting uh, this week uh, certainly has kept the VIX elevated at the beginning of the week, but the rather dovish comment from Mr. Powell sent the VIX lower on Friday, was down uh, two and a quarter point for the week. 
As a result, uh, the realized volatility in the S&P flirted with historic lows around 8.5% annualized. Compare that to the average VIX uh, index level of 17.53 during August. The VIX also remains high, highly sensitive to declines in the S&P 500. We've talked about this before. And again, this week we saw uh, on Thursday that there was this tiny 0.6% decline in the S&P from peak to trough, and that caused a two and a half point rally in the VIX. So a lot of reaction still as soon as the S&P shows a little bit of weakness. Um, but all in all, this um, was a slightly positive week for our volatility strategy. In terms of the trend-following portfolio, my own trend-following portfolio, it was a small up week, I would say. It's still down 1.43% for the month of uh, August, and it's up 10.32% year-to-date. Performance so far this month, as we come to a close pretty soon, Group 1, flat, I would say, up 11 basis points. Uh, Group 2, doing okay, up 79 basis points this month. And Group 3, the fast reacting, that's really where the pain is coming in, to, down 2.34% uh, this month. So not uh, faring too well with some of this up-down, up-down moves that uh, Rich just mentioned. Sector performance, the top three sectors are still only top two because there's only two of the sectors that are profitable, equities and softs. And the worst sectors this month, uh, bonds, base metals and currencies. Bonds, I imagine, actually is from the shorter term models, by the way. And if we drill down to single markets for the month, the uh, SMI, the Swiss Market Index, and the NASDAQ and the Australian SPY, so all equities, make up the top three. And at the bottom uh, this month, we see the DAX, copper, and 10-year notes. In terms of the trading this week, pretty light. Monday, the program bought a bit more of, of NASDAQ. And that was the only thing it did. Tuesday, it bought a little bit of uh, live cattle. And that was the only thing it did on that day. And then Wednesday, one of the short-term models uh, took a very nice profit, I should say, in a long German Bund trade, and then tried to go short. And that was it for the week. Thursday, Friday, there were no fills for um, for people who follow the risk to stop, which, by the way, is in one of the questions today. The risk to stop level, meaning if all the positions got stopped out on Monday, the model would lose 12.5%. And that is a little bit up from the 11.35% last week, but nothing nothing too dramatic. Now, Rich, before we jump into, we have some great topics, by the way, at least uh, in my opinion. We have some good questions that came in, but also uh, you brought along, uh, again, some great topics to discuss. But before we jump into the um, questions today, I just wanted to touch on last week's topic where we talked about trend followers being hunters of outliers. And I was thinking to myself this morning that perhaps we came across last week as if trend followers were the only people doing this, but that's really not the case. I would argue that this is precisely what venture capital funds do and also what normal equity index investors do because if we look at what has driven all of these equity markets to new all-time highs, it's really just a handful of stocks like the FANG stocks. So perhaps we are more similar to other type of investment strategies than most people think. And um, we just talk about it differently, so to speak. What What are your thoughts on, on that? Yes, look, I, I believe that a lot of these other methods are beneficiaries of these outliers. But um, what I'd say is that 
we specifically target them with the uh, with our asymmetric models. So buy and hold, of course, are the beneficiary of these outliers, but they also um, uh, don't have any tail risk protection in their models. So what they might achieve on the upside, they lose on the downside when this non-linearity gets unfavorable or favorable. But um, our method is strictly... Uh, getting this benefit of non-linearity from positive returns and our models strictly mitigate any adverse downside risk. But, um, you know, there are other divergent models that are specifically attacking these outliers as well, such as op- option strategies, etc. So, yes, um, I'd say in this bucket of, of styles called divergence, yes, this is principally where they're getting their benefit from, these outlier moves, uh, non-linear moves. And I, I just say that we have a very efficient technique of extracting that edge that exists within that outlier. Yeah, exactly. So my conclusion and the notes I wrote down is that, so the key difference is not how we look to make money, but rather how we manage the risk, avoid the 50% drawdown as equity markets will have from time to time, because we obsess with cutting our losses, which ties in quite greatly, I would say, with the fact that trend followers look at themselves as risk managers first and foremost, because we can control the risk we take, and then we just have to let the profits take care of themselves. All right, let's jump into some of these questions for this week. Uh, The first one coming from Louis. Louis writes, hi, Nils, thanks for the amazing podcast. I've been an avid listener to your show for some time. Also, a huge shout-out to Rich and Fred for the invaluable educational content they provide at ATS. They've taught me everything I know about trend-following, and they are always on hand uh, to offer support, so thanks for that. I've constructed and have been forward-testing my trend-following portfolio across currencies, equities, metals, energies, and commodities for some time. The question I have is pretty general, but I believe I'm ready to transition to a live account. Based on your combined experience, there are, uh, are there any nuggets of advice or any lessons learned you could share in this regard? I anticipate that my portfolio will go into a drawdown and could be in the red for some time whilst my models sink to the market. Do you think it would be a good idea to lower the portfolio leverage to allow for this initial incubation period whilst the portfolio gets up and running? My plan is to trade a small account so that I can gain exposure to live trading with the intention of scaling up on capital. Thanks a lot, Louis. So, Rich, I'm going to let you uh, jump in first. Yes, look, um, it's great to hear from Louis. He is uh, one of our very active members of our site, and um, he's a a lawyer by background, and I have this theory that lawyers make good trend traders, and uh, he's certainly demonstrating that. Um, He's taken the bit by the teeth in what we're delivering to him, and it, it keeps Fred and I on our... On, on our toes, as we've always got to try and keep ahead of them. There's a couple of very cluey guys in our in our forum who who make sure that um, you know we keep the research coming, keep them abreast of new ideas. But what Louis speaks about is the it, it, this inevitable entry into the market with your live account once you've done all of your research and testing. So he's already done extensive um, research and development through his back testing phase. And um, he's also done a, a significant incubation phase on um, a, using a, a virtual private server with all of the algorithms basically in a, in a what they call a demo environment setting um, to ensure that 
all of the algorithms are free of any um, execution issues. He's also been doing what we call parallel testing, which is whereby you compare and contrast your backtest results against your live trade results in that demo environment. So there needs to be some degree of <clears throat> synchronicity between the two. Uh, the only difference being that uh, there might be a bit of um, cost variability between your backtest and your demo. But now, after this incubation phase has been completed, he's now ready to launch his live account. And from our experience, what we've found is um, with these particular trend-following models that we adopt, it often takes <clears throat> around about a year or even two years to get traction, dependent on the, the nature of the market when you enter the markets. And, you know, um, when we go back in time to the 1980s or the 1970s, where, where trends were ubiquitous, you tended to sort of, uh, when you, you took a start in this market, you immediately became the beneficiaries of some of these trending conditions. But in these more difficult um, regimes these days, you can, for instance, start your trend-following program and find that it takes a year or two before you're, you can ever catch any of these possible outliers. And all of that time, you're spinning your wheels and you're getting drawdowns, you're getting depressed, you're thinking, gosh, all of this work I've done, is this going to eventuate into something? I hope I haven't made the biggest mistake of my life believing these guys have told me that this is what you need to do. So what I'd suggest to Louis is start small. Start with um, maybe half his trade risk that he was applying in his backtest simply to get comfortable with the volatility that he's going to achieve in that first few years. Because um, as I said, with these long-term models, initially all the trades that you get, the closed trades, are going to be losses because some of our holds in our back test show that we're holding for two, three years, et cetera. So to really get the beneficial sort of impacts of those long holding trades, you need to have about two years under your belt before you see that translating into your realized balance of your, your equity curve. Uh, of course, you've got your unrealized balance, but it inevitably starts out going downhill. And so therefore, I'd suggest, well, avoid the, the pain that's typically faced by a new entrant in um, where they, they go down fast because they're applying what they applied in their back test, I'd say halve it. Halve it, get to feel the volatility in it until you're comfortable with it. Once you're comfortable with it, then lift it up to maybe your back test level. That's what I'd, I'd be suggesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. A couple of other ways to to maybe look at this, Louis, and and, and I, I don't know what the system is, so pardon me if, if, if what I'm going to say now doesn't make uh, sense or doesn't really apply to the way you've set your system up. But I mean, a couple of things that I would also do is perhaps just uh, like I do on, on with my system every day is just to look at what is the open risk, so to speak. If everything got stopped out of current positions, you know, are you at a peak level there? Then maybe that's another uh, reason why you would start uh, smaller. Um, another thing that, of course, uh, you hear Jerry and Moritz talk about is that, you know, look at the sort of close profits. If you are looking at your most recent um, sort of uh, back test or live test of, of your system, you know, how much open profit do you have? Uh, so just be aware of that. But in general, I mean, we can come here with all our theoretical ideas. Uh, the The whole point is, you need to get started. And as Rich says, why don't you just start with half and, and scale it up? I think that's a good as good advice as, as any other advice we could give you. And also, I think sometimes we need to be careful not to overthink what we're doing. I mean, that's the whole point about having a system and having rules is we try not to think too much on a day-to-day -day basis once we're 
in it. So um, so good luck with that. Uh, Louis, let us know how it goes. Question from Aaron. Uh, hello, long-time binge, binger of the podcast. First time I'm writing in. Thanks for the work you do. I can think of no better resource which offers the perfect blend of trend-following wisdom and smooth jazz interludes. I appreciate that, Aaron. And my question, Niels, I've heard you cite some research to suggest that an extremely high number of investment portfolios can improve their risk-reward profile by allocating some of their capital to trend-following. I want to flip the script. If you had to, were first, were, brackets were forced to, allocate 20% of your capital to a non-trend-following, non-momentum strategy to complement your main strategy as a trend-follower, which strategy would you choose and why? Interesting question, Aaron, from Utah. Rich, um, let me flip it to you first. <laughs> yes, Aaron's flipping the tables on us, and I, I'm not sure I'm very happy with this, but I, uh, we've now got to put the boot in the other foot. So he's saying, where do we allocate 20% of our balance to, recognizing that 80% is in these trend-following models? Now, I have a feeling he's forcing us into this convergent world, Niels, but if he's not... I'd be putting my 20% into um, these option models that we were discussing with Derek uh, Wong the other day. I'm a strong believer in divergence, and I think you get these absolute returns from divergence. And with finite capital, when you've got to make a decision, do you go divergence or do you play with a bit of convergence? I tend to think, well, you're sort of suboptimally playing with convergence if you incorporate them into your models because you're, that capital could have been better spent in divergence. So, But look, if we can't play with divergence and we've got this 20%, the, I'd actually use a process to make my decision. I wouldn't make my decision on on my gut feel or intuition. I'd use a bit of empirical testing. I would be looking at very long-term data sets um, of models, different models, as opposed to trend-following momentum models, over a similar time frame, like 20 or 30 years. And then I'd be assessing the rigor and robustness of those models I wouldn't actually be saying which is best or having any sort of decision based or discretionary decision based logic applied here. I'd be letting the data tell me which are the most robust, which offer the greatest compiled benefit with my eighty percent of other portfolios. So there, I'd be I'd be sort of um, incorporating different return streams of these twenty percent of different models into my portfolio, comprising eighty percent of my trend following models. And there'd be some sweet spot I'd get from the iteration of all of these different return streams together to create this best risk-adjusted path. I'd be looking at that over a 30-year period. So that I'd be using a process, a data-driven process to empirically test as opposed to a statement that, oh, I like a carry trade or, oh, I like value investing or, oh, I like mean reverting. Um, I'd be making sure there's this empirical validity to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it it does make sense, and um, in many respects, I you you could say that that's probably would be a safe answer for me as well. You could say it slightly differently. You could say, well, Aaron, maybe you want to just find a strategy or an investment that generally has a very low or no correlation to trend following. If you got eighty percent uh, in trend following, by the way, I really like the fact that you say it's the eighty percent that goes to trend following and not the twenty percent as we as we normally do. So that's great. But I could also give you another answer, Aaron, and that is to say, okay, if I'm investing in a diversified trend-following portfolio with most of my capital, you know, I'm very diversified, I'm playing it long and short. So what else, what 
kind of crazy kind of thing could I do with the 20% that might actually be serving some kind of other purpose for my long-term wealth creation? So I could also say, well, maybe you want to put 10% in gold and 10% in, in Bitcoin for that matter, just to do something completely different to what you would do if you start thinking too much about it and finding something that's non-correlated. Or you could even put some of it in 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 long equities for that matter, uh, because we know of the long-term correlation between equities and, and trend following. So I'm kind of um, maybe more open-minded about what you could do, um, but I think that, uh, you know, a little bit of research into what would fit trend following well is probably a good idea. But on the other hand, if I was thinking about just wealth protection in the long run, then I might actually think really differently than just finding another strategy. I might think about what kind of asset would I like to own if the whole world go um, pear-shaped, so to speak. But anyways, interesting question. Um, never had that one before, so I appreciate that, Aaron. Now, the final question is from uh, also down under. I think we could safely say it's from New Zealand. It's from Graham. Even though I have to say, Graham, the way you spell your name threw me off a little bit. Maybe it's my dyslexia, but uh, luckily I had uh, Rich on hand to uh, tell me that actually it's pronounced Graham. Hi, Nils. Uh, um, do enjoy your talks with Richard down under style. I'm in New Zealand. I trade a systematic model around two instruments, only the Aussie Spy and crude oil. Can you talk a little bit about margin per trade instrument, perhaps excluding currencies, Nice to say you trade 50 instruments, but I doubt they all have the same margin and how you allocate the money. I guess that means margin. One other small point, I think your short-term model, you quote, if they all get stopped out tomorrow, off the top of my head, is 10 to 13%. So that's the risk to stop, by the way, just, just to clarify that. Seems to me quite good slash low. Uh, any elaboration? I personally like $10,000 per trade to be on the safe side, maybe spy and crude oil, bigger contracts, uh, question mark. Thanks very much from Graham. Rich, any thoughts? Look, it's good to hear from um, our brother from across the ditch, as we say. So that's the Tasman, and uh, he's over in New Zealand, so he's a Kiwi. So we love our Kiwi, Kiwis, except when we're playing rugby and cricket. Um, so, but we're, we're, we're partners in crime. But to Graham's question... So just, just to give a, a context for margin, um, when we're trading leverage products such as derivatives, such as futures, um, CFDs fit into that, and there's other de derivative products as well, they're, they're leverage products. When you put your money into a broker's trading account, a portion of that money is assigned by that broker to a, a margin, which is a degree of collateral that is required or a deposit that's required that takes the, um, the risk associated with the current active trades that they've got um, in their, their broker's account. So based on the, the account balance that you have in your, your broker's account, this margin is being continuously calculated on an ongoing basis by your broker, and it goes up and down dependent on what your um, current equity is and what your trade activity is and what, what, what the the unrealized profits or losses that exist in that uh, equity. So what this does is this is simply something that is used by brokers to give them a degree of um, asset protection 
And uh, because we are getting the benefit of, of leverage products or credit products where we're only supplying a portion or a fraction of the value of that underlying instrument. And hence, that's why we get the, the leverage, which is necessary, particularly with our diversified trend-following models. Fortunately for us, margin uh, because we can trade on margin, that allows us um, to spread our capital very widely across very many different return streams, as opposed to simply um, having no leverage or no margin and investing directly in an asset like shares. And if we had, say, $100,000 in shares that were unleveraged, I could only buy, say, say 10 of them at $10,000 each to, to totally utilise my capital balance of 100000 But with, with leverage, I can achieve exposure of maybe um, 200 return streams, especially in my world of CFDs and Forex, which Forex is another derivative instrument, and that allows me to achieve very wide diversification through this leverage. But I don't actually use margin uh, or leverage as a basis to allocate money or to my particular return streams or to my particular strategies. I'm using a fixed dollar risk assigned to each of my individual strategies or markets after they've been normalized. So I use the um, average true range or the ATR as a basis to normalize the volatility of my markets. And therefore, I then can apply a standard fixed dollar risk or an equal bet size in dollar terms to each of the markets I trade, which is not using marginal leverage. That's using um, a volatility measure, ATR, a normalized volatility measure to um, risk a certain defined amount of capital in relation to my account balance. So no, I don't use margin as a basis for a form of allocation. That is a um, an, an unfortunate um, re- requirement for us to put up our capital to our brokers. And in the event that our account balance actually drops below this margin calculation that they're calculating, that's where you get this dreaded word called the margin call. Now, we all want to avoid the margin call because what happens with the margin call is that's a broker saying, well, the current calculation of that margin is greater than your current account balance you've got with us. You now need to top up your account balance to exceed that threshold. Otherwise, if you don't give that money to us in the next 24 hours, we're going to sell those positions under you that are are causing that margin. So if that's the case, then you can get into a horrible world if you get to these margin tolerance thresholds where suddenly your models, all of the backtesting, you don't see this in the backtesting, the margin call totally makes all of that work useless. So you therefore want to keep away from those margin thresholds. So you don't want to over leverage your portfolios or models. But um, as I said, I use an ATR-based method uh, uh, to um, allocate a fixed risk or a small bet to each position. But then I do keep an eye on my margin to make sure that I'm never in a situation where my my uh, account balance uh, gets close to that uh, margin threshold. And fortunately, with our particular trend-following models, the cut losses short, bet profits run, have a very small bet size. Unless we are applying excessive leverage in our portfolios, we find that we keep very clear of those margin threshold levels to never be in a situation for a margin call. Yeah. So maybe just to uh, add uh, a few things. So it's it's absolutely right what uh, Rich is saying, uh, Graham, in terms of when you say how we allocate the money, so to speak, um, it has nothing to do with the margin. I think, though, 
when you decide on your portfolio, obviously you're trading two instruments, so it's relatively easy to uh, to find out. But if you were to include more instruments, it's very very easy to find out what the margin requirements are for all of these futures markets. But it shouldn't be the one that's kind of guiding you, maybe with the exception of if there's a contract that just has such a large margin requirement, you might want to skip that. The one market I can think of that is in that category uh, for for many uh, in investors in the diversified portfolio is something like Palladium. Palladium, for some reason, has a massive uh, margin requirement per contract. So yeah, uh, just like Rich explained, the risk is really just allocated of how much money we're prepared to to lose on a on a single trade. And then you asked about this risk to stop level that I quote every week and which you're right. I mean, I think on average it's it's often around 10 to 13%, but it can certainly go um somewhat higher from memory. I've, I've seen it around 20% at times if you have lots of uh, this normally would happen when there are lots of open profits, so you have many positions, you have many trends, the markets are moving in your favor, so your stops are coming up somewhat slower and therefore the gap down to the stops can can give you this uh, risk to stop at a higher level. Is it low? Is it good? I don't know. I think that's a personal decision. For me, it's fine because if I look at the overall returns of this model over time, it it's pretty attractive. I can't remember from on top of my hat, but it's probably kind of a 15% type strategy um, net of fees uh, in the long run, which is, I think, uh, for a trend-following strategy, pretty good. But also, despite that, and despite the number being low, it doesn't mean that your losses will be capped at 10 to 13%. Your drawdown can be a few times that when you see it over time, because drawdowns can, of course, happen when you have multiple entries um, that get stopped out over a period of time. So so my particular strategy certainly have seen drawdowns since 1990 where the data goes back of around 38% from memories what it, it is. And that's not unusual that you have maybe a, a one to two or one to three uh, risk reward relationship, meaning if you can make if you can make 15% on average after fees, you probably can lose 40% in a given drawdown. It, you know, that's typically quite normal. I mean, just as a reminder, uh, equities, we say, are around 7-8% long-term returns, but we know the drawdowns are more than 50%. So it's still a significantly better risk-reward ratio, in my opinion, than equities for all the reasons we talk about every week on the podcast. Let's leave the questions here. We appreciate all of you for sending them in and keep sending them in um, because it makes the show uh, more fun for for you, the listener, I'm sure, and it makes it also fun for us. And and it also is quite educational for us to find out where are kind of the where's the interest in terms of the trend following journey that you're all on. Um, what are you finding difficult? What do you um, want us to uh, weigh in on? So we really appreciate every week receiving you know three, four, five questions uh, from from our community. Now, this is part of the show where we again go into some of the topics that Rich uh, brought along. And uh, today we're going to first tackle, I think, a big one, one that we have had so many questions about in the past and which is kind of a really tricky area, but nevertheless hugely important. 
to uh, not just get it right, but certainly uh, make sure and understand how to avoid getting it wrong. And that's backtesting. So I think I'm going to just let Rich set the scene, talk about some of the things that uh, he had prepared, and then I'm going to jump in with some observations or thoughts or questions uh, to that, Rich. So if that's okay with you, why don't you um, talk about backtesting? Okay, Neil. So I, I recently wrote an article called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly of Backtesting. And, uh, you know, it had uh, Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and uh, I think it was Eli Wallach, Wallach um, you know, doing the, the, the face-off together. And there certainly is a good, a bad, and the, an ugly part of backtesting. And uh, I'd just um, like to explain this. So, with trend following, we've, we've discussed on prior podcasts together how our primary goal is to capture these outliers. And we've already stated that outliers are non-predictive in nature and uh, they're the secret to our success. So in relation to someone saying, well, then why do you use backtesting if you, can't, uh, if you, you don't have any predict- predictive ability about the nature of these outliers? And that's a very good question. Why do we use backtesting? And I know a lot of um, trend followers are not uh, not very fussed with backtests as as any form of measure. But what I would say is this: I'd say that we need to drop the notion that backtests are a method to predict um, expected returns in the future, as we certainly cannot predict them in any shape, way, or form. So immediately that eliminates the backtest which uh, is traditionally used for a lot of these predictive models. We can't use it for that. But there are certain things that we can use it for, and we always talk about um, uh, strong adherence to risk management, and back tests are something that are very useful in managing risk because they give us a, a roadmap or a blueprint about how to manage risk. So... Um, in relation to the bad, well, the bad is we cannot use backtests to forecast expected future returns. If we believe that our backtest has any resemblance of what's going to happen in the future, we've got rocks in our heads and um, immediately dispatch that viewpoint as a silly silly idea from a trend follower who has no knowledge of what the future will bring in relation to outliers. The ugly, now the ugly is when people use backtests as a way to get these lovely linear equity curves where they um, they they adopt these beautiful ascending equity curves that are very smooth in nature, but it's only focusing on a specific narrow market regime. But because um, they've spent all of their effort in developing this beautiful straight equity curve, they believe that that beautiful straight equity curve has some enduring feature into the future. But as we know, uh, when you curve fit your backtest to a specific market regime and that regime then changes, that linear beautiful equity curve suddenly nosedives and it goes goes quickly towards a possible risk of ruin. Now, that is the ugly part of the backtest. The good part of the backtest is that um, it can be used as a way to um, assess the assumptions of risk management that we adopt into our models. And a further use of the backtest is it allows us to distinguish between what we regard as outliers versus 
alternative trends that exist in noisy and mean reverting environments. So just to break that down, so let's say we have assumptions in our backtest model that says, where do we place our initial stop? Where do we place our trailing stop? We have them um, as a design consideration in our models, but the actual placement of them, how far away, how many ATR away they need to be, needs to be um, undertaken throughout a backtest to evaluate the level of noise that exists and where to optimally place these so we don't get this perpetual whipsaw from having our stops and initial stops too close to our entries. So we need breathing room, and a backtest is a way to, from an empirical way, to assess the level of noise in markets or the average range of markets to identify where to place these things. So that's useful for a backtest. A backtest is also useful to ensure that we've got positive skew in our models because we can actually use a backtest to then evaluate how our models have been applied to historic market data, and then we can um, identify whether uh, there is positive skew in the signature. In other words, does it catch the outliers that we want to catch? And how good is it at avoiding noise and mean reversion? So that's the risk mitigation methods that are very important with backtesting. And another very useful um, element of the backtest is in relation to it, it allows us to estimate what is the appropriate leverage to apply in our models. Now, Without a backtest and without a knowledge of how it's performed over a historical data set, it might be too easy to be too aggressive in our leverage on our models. Too much position size. How much position size? How little position size? Uh, What is regarded as excessive leverage that creates these very volatile equity curves? We don't want that. So a backtest is a very good way of um, basically gauging the level of leverage that we need in our models to uh, get a good result over the long term without too much volatility in our equity curve. And another very useful element of backtest for the risk management side of it is that it allows us to incorporate real trading costs into our models to evaluate, well, what is the material impact of trading costs such as the spread, the holding costs or the swap, and any slippage that might occur with our our breakout entry or our other forms of trend-following model. So by incorporating um, these more realistic costs into our backtest, we can look at what is that degree of materiality of the costs and is that is that too much, too little? How much edge are we getting from our outliers in relation to the, the negative drag associated with that cost? That's something backtests can always give you. So that's a very good part of backtests. But importantly, in relation to risk management, backtests are a way to stress test our models to ensure that whatever history has thrown at us in the past, now this does not need to be the history of actual history for a particular market. We can create new histories through reconstructing data through random uh, model modeling, where we insert serial correlation into that modeling to create new data we've never seen before, historic data we've seen before. We can normalize uh, backtests across any different markets. So rather than seeing things as different markets, all we are seeing is different possible historic data sets that we can apply our same trend-following models to. That therefore allows us to rigorously stress test our models, just like a bank stress tests um, their their models, their banking models. We can do the same under the backtest. 
So that's the risk mitigation part of the back test, which is very important to us and is very useful. That's one of the, the half of the good. The other half of the good is it allows us to distinguish between an outlier versus a trend. So just to explain that, there are three possible classes of trend. We can, ha- we can have a random trend, which is constructed from random data. We've, ex- we've explained this before in a previous podcast with you, Niels, but it's very easy to construct random trends from the data that is independent in nature. Each of the, the price points is independent to each other, but it still can create a random trend. Or if, if these trends are serial correlated, so if we have serial correlation in the data, we can create a trend which is a small component of a bigger mean reverting cycle. So the noisy trend or the random trend or the mean reverting trend are actually trends we don't want to catch. A, a trend that um, is, a, is a small component of a larger mean reverting cycle results in this whipsaw, this fake breakout. So when we're we're expecting price to continue on, we have our breakout models, we jump into the trade, and immediately it whipsaws back quite significantly with momentum. That's not a noisy trend, or it could be, but more likely it is a, a mean reverting element that looks like a trend, but it's only a small segment of a bigger mean reverting cycle. So those two forms of trend we want to avoid. The third form of trend that we want is this outlier. We've already explained that. It's nonlinear in nature. It's got serial correlation in the series. So if we've got these three different possible types of trend in normal, everyday, average data, how do we delineate between an outlier and these other two forms of trend? And that's where we need to look at what we call the Gaussian envelope or the envelope within which all three types of trend exist and then exclude the two forms of trend that only reside in the normal distribution component of that Gaussian envelope. Anything outside in the tails of that distribution are the outliers we want to get. So that therefore allows our backtest to actually define these zones within which price becomes more elastic in nature. It steps outside the normal range of the market. Price gets more elastic in nature. We get these volatility surges. We get non-linearity coming into our trends. Serial correlation because of positive feedback is drive or accelerating these trends away. That is something that occurs within a phase shift context between the normal market regime where everything is sticky and uh, we get this linearity to when price gets more elastic and moves into these, this sort of volatility, volatility expansion phase where we get this convexity, we get this acceleration out of that particular phase of the market. That is something that backtests also can define. So whilst we can't predict these outliers in advance, we can certainly eliminate uh, the negative trending impacts or the negative impacts of noise and mean reversion on those outliers through our backtests. So That's the good, the second half of the good phase of the good, the bad, and the ugly of backtests. So that's what that article was about, Niels. Okay, so let me share some of my thoughts, but also maybe, um, quote-unquote, push back a little bit on some of these things because I hear this all the time, right? That, um, yeah, well, we can't really uh, use the backtest too very much, in terms of what the future might look like. Everybody will say that. They'll also say that there's never been a bad backtest, which, of course, is true because people tend to 
uh, end up fitting uh, and so on and so forth. But but here's the thing, and this is maybe not very well uh, phrased, but what I hear you say is, and you're not alone, by the way, on these things, is that we can use some of the backtest for things such as to look at the riskiness, to see certain things. But I'm just thinking, well, if we can use that part of the backtest, why can't we use other parts of the backtest? Why, how do we distinguish between what we can use from the backtest and what we can't use from the backtest? To me, that is not logical. So I look at it slightly differently, uh, meaning I think if I look at a backtest, and we can come to about how maybe one should do a backtest, we can, we can talk about that. But if I look at a backtest, do I expect exactly the same returns and drawdowns? No. Do I expect something? And and by the way, I should I should pair I should um, uh, emphasize that when I think about a backtest of a strategy, I think about a backtest that has been over such a long period of time that you've gone through many different types of environments. I'm not looking at six months data or six years of data. For trend following, it's probably 30 years of data, maybe not more than that, because then some of the markets weren't even active by the, you know, before the 1990s or 1980s. But but a very long period of time where you could argue that we've had certain different regimes, we've had lots of surprises, black swans and and what have you. So if the backtest seems to uh, to first of all, it has to look when you use just your common sense, it has to look um, that it's reacted in a logical fashion. Uh, from a trend-following point of view, it should probably lose money when trend-following indices are losing money. It should probably make money when when everyone else is making money. The 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 point of the backtest for trend-following product, I think, is to see whether possibly you found something where you make a little bit more money than other people, or maybe you lose a little bit less than other people, and therefore, quote unquote, you have a system that is maybe a little bit better than the than 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 what other people have. So I think. So, so, so to me, that's really important. So I actually think that, okay, I'm not necessarily expecting the same t- uh, results uh, year by year, but I'm certainly expecting the same profile, meaning I want to see, uh, or I will expect that drawdowns, okay, they could, of course, be worse than what you've seen in your backtest. We always say that your worst drawdown is ahead of you. So you should be prepared for that. But you should also take some level of comfort, I think, in, what kind of drawdowns you've seen in the past, both in depth, but also in duration. Now, of course, we've just gone through a period of time for trend followers, which has been unusual, where probably drawdowns have been longer than they were uh, for a very long time. And I can't remember exactly when, but not that long ago, within the last 10 years or so, I seem to remember that many trend followers, this could be around 2013-ish, summer of 2013, where trend followers who had been around for 20, 30 years actually saw their worst drawdown ever in their track records and actually by quite a big margin. So about 50% deeper than what we had seen before. Not everyone, but but many of the leading CTAs did. So so let's be absolutely clear that whatever you see in your backtest is not a guarantee that it can't get worse in the future. Of course it can. But at least you should be somewhat uh, aligned with what other managers uh, see at the same time. So for me, the profile is very important when I see the backtest. And what I really like to do myself is, and in some ways, that's what I've been doing with my own trend-following models because I work for a firm, so I don't trade my model live. That uh, I can't do that. 
but it's given me like a seven, eight year forward test. Every single day I run the model, I see the performance, I can compare that to um, the live data that I have from before uh, joining done, and I can compare that to the back test of the model from before we, we got it live, but what we based our assumptions on to implement the model originally. And of course, people don't would never say, okay, yeah, I'm going to spend 10 years just doing the, a forward test to see if, if I'm right. I understand that. But it's, it's, it's been very, very interesting to see because I, I guess it tells you something about how good you were at doing your back test in the first place. What are the assumptions you used? Because you said that we want to avoid curve fitting, but I think we actually do want some level of curve fitting. That's how we get to what we're looking for, but we don't want overfitting. So to me, there's a big distinction between curve fitting and overfitting and so on and so forth. So maybe what we could do, uh, Rich, is maybe we could share a couple of thoughts and I would love to hear your thoughts on how do you make a backtest as objective as possible? How do you make it as robust as possible so that you can take as much comfort from it as possible, but still with the caveat that things can change, we know that, so that some of these things will turn out differently in the future, but at least then it should probably be aligned with what you're seeing in the industry as a whole, meaning if you're a trend follower, you shouldn't be making a lot of money in a year like 2018 because the whole industry lost a bunch of money that year and vice versa. Do you have some thoughts about how to make a, a backtest uh, as objective? Do you have a, a like a checklist you follow? Do you have a process? I think with everything we do in trend following, it's all about building a process. And I think when it comes to backtesting, I think it's the same thing. You kind of have your own little checklist uh, of, of of the way what you want to do in which order you want to do it it and and you know what kind of checks and balances you you go you 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 have along the way yes so look one of the uh, we've, we've got a uh, quite a few processes we involve but one one an important one is what we call mapping to market and this is where once we've done a back test and we generate an equity curve um what we do is we explicitly map that equity curve against the market data. So what we're trying to see there is that it, there is this inevitable ability within data mining circles to overcurve fit your results, uh, which is effectively um, to some part of the signal that might exist, but also possibly to a lot of the noise that exists in that historic market data. So if we get an equity curve that's starting to appear linear, we automatically get suspect because that is not an equity curve that can be generated with a trend-following model. Because if you could imagine where trends exist in the market data, they are not continuous throughout that market data. There are long periods of drawdown or stagnation um, of, of random market data, and then we might get a trend arising. So there is no way from a single return stream you can generate a linear equity curve. And if we get that, we know they're going to be curve fit. But what we do do, um, when we get a, an equity curve that has some resemblance of being volatile, which is necessary, 
we then map it to the market data. So when we have the market data in front of us, we can visually define what these outliers are. And we can circle those outliers in the market data because they are anomalous features that are very obvious to the naked eye. They sit well above what a normal trend is. These are big anomalous events. Now, dependent on the cleanliness of that outlier is going to determine whether we are able to catch them effectively with our models. So if we see a nice clean outlier, we know there must be some representation in that equity curve that we have caught that. If we don't get a big step up in our equity curve when we can clearly see a lovely outlier, we know that there's a fault in our backtesting. Either our models aren't um, targeting that particular aspect of the outlier or our models are, are targeting noise as opposed to the signals in the noise. So during periods where we clearly can visually see in the data through the outliers uh, that we should be performing, we would want to see that performance represented in our equity curve. But then in other periods, if we see a, a, an improving equity curve in a clearly sideways congesting market that offers no significant trending opportunities, if we see improvement in our equity curve, that's suspect. That, um, that tells us that the model is um, dodgy. So we'll then revisit the model and always do this mapping to market. That's one stage in our process. The other stage in our process is that we hit our, our models, our trend-following models, with as much data as we can get our hands on. So we apply what we call an extensive multi-market test. So the philosophy of us uh, of our models is that our models are capturing an outlier. We can't predict where the outliers exist. They could be existing in any market data. So that's that's inconsequential to our models. As provided our models can catch those outliers, that's good. What we do focus on is what is the risk? What is the adverse risk from these stag stagnating environments or environments that are, uh, are not positive to our trend-following models? There must be times where we get significant drawdowns. We want to see that. We want to test our models in those environments. If we find that our drawdowns get too extreme, we know we've got to do something about that. That is a clear sign that history has said that there's been a regime which our models, supposedly cutting losses short and letting profits run, have deteriorated with a significant drawdown increase and, uh, and the drawdown has been a rapid drawdown. When we get that rapid drawdown in our equity curve, we know something's going wrong. We should not be getting a rapid decline in our drawdown. We should be getting a, you know, a, maybe a slow decline in our drawdown. But if we're getting a rapid decline, that tells us something's wrong. We're either over-leveraged or our systems are, are, are maybe sort of getting continuously whipsawed because they're, they're too narrow in configuration, too short-term in nature, dealing with noise. So, these methods of extensive testing across multi-markets or data we generate ourselves or um, historic data over 30, 40 years, they're just means to assess the possible risk weaknesses that lie in our models. If we can clean up that risk weakness and we know that our models can catch an outlier because of their open-ended nature, and um, we've seen that in our mapping to market phase, then we can do a big tick and say, Good chance it's not curve fit. We can never remove um, a being overly curve fit, but we can certainly reduce it to as much as we possibly can. I would suggest that everyone that does a back test is always overly curve fit. I know that people say, well, you should have a lovely back test, and then when you walk forward, you should have a projection that continues on 
uh, with that nice ascending linear equity curve? Well, that's a story associated with convergence. We don't find that. If we find that we have a backtest result and an equity curve, we must expect we will underperform that. But as you say, in the future, our drawdowns are much more extreme than we ever experience in our, in our history because of the multiple many paths that exist in the future. It's always going to test new regimes we've never seen in the past. So that uh, maximum drawdown is always ahead of us. So therefore, in addition to um, our back test, we can come in with a principle that says, all right, let's cut our risk in half because we know our drawdowns are going to be double in the future. So uh, there are all of these different things we can do in our processes that um, address what you're talking about. So just a couple of uh, comments and, and, and questions. I'm intrigued by when you say, yeah, if we find a drawdown we don't like, we can clean it up. I mean, <laughs> what do you mean clean it up? So what, what I mean there is um, we can use measures that assess the, um, the rapidity of the descent and the drawdown. This is where um, you'll be familiar with the, I know you are, Niels, with the serenity ratio. The serenity ratio is a, uh, a risk-adjusted metric that not only looks at the extremity of the drawdown, it looks at the path of that drawdown. We, we look at the path of drawdown. So if you could imagine, let's, let's compare some, uh, we have a trend-following model. Uh, we see that um, it has a drawdown. We see that the drawdown is a slow build into a drawdown. We know, therefore, or have confidence over, over a 30-year time frame, we see that these drawdowns are not these rapid, massive drawdowns. That, that's, to us, suggesting there's too much leverage in the model, and uh, their, their drawdowns are getting exacerbated. And when you exacerbate your drawdown, you um, reduce the impact of the compounding benefit that you can get out of your equity curve. So those funds that have these rapid, big drawdowns we suspect that it's through excessive leverage, which you want to reduce. So that's a position sizing, possibly a position sizing problem we need to check. You can then rerun your back tests and see with a reduced position size whether the actual profile of that drawdown changes with reduced position sizing. And you'll find it will, because it's not a there is not a linear relationship between position size and drawdown. You'll find that as you reduce your drawdown, oh, sorry, reduce your position size, you can actually shallow out your drawdown. Your, your, uh, it, uh, it doesn't take the same degree of accelerated progression down into the drawdown. Now, I'm, I'm sure you are much more into the, the weeds of, of all of this, so I'm just using my, uh, my, my simple uh, common sense and from what I observe. And when I look at trend-following returns, and I look at drawdowns, I think of drawdowns as two very, that they can happen in two very different ways. You can, as you rightly say, you can have these long, slow drawdowns, typically when you, when there are no trends and you get stopped in, you get stopped out, and that's kind of the slow bleed. But we've always had the risk of the reversal drawdowns, which are by nature, uh, you know, quicker and 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 um, can go quite deep, uh, as deep as, as any other drawdown, I guess. So the way I think about this is that, okay, so if we're getting a big, quick drawdown, the ones that you say, oh, let's figure out what's going on and let's clean it up, I'm not so sure that doing that is the right thing. It, it depends, let's put it that way, because if you think about February of 2018, if you think about 
to some extent February 2020, but certainly the February 2018 was a very quick and incredibly deep and painful drawdown for trend followers because we had massive reversals in all sectors at all times. So to me, the question becomes, okay, can I do anything about it? And you might say, yeah, we can do this, that, and the other. But then the question that really becomes, do I want to do anything about it? Because these type of drawdowns happen so infrequently. And this is the question we get from, from clients from time to time when they go through one of these drawdowns and they are painful. We understand that. And they say to us, can't you do something to, to avoid this in the future? And we say, yeah, absolutely. But we're not going to do it because it's going to hurt our long-term performance and we're addressing an issue that happens maybe 1% of the time. So, so to me, it's, it's very hard to just say, oh, just because I see a, a, a big, deep drawdown, quick drawdown, that that's a really bad thing. I think it comes with the territory and it comes with the fact that we say we have no idea what the market action will be in the future. And therefore, we must e- expect and and also the other thing, by the way, uh, Rich. So when when you and I started in this industry, markets were much more um, non-correlated. I wouldn't use that word. Let's put it independent. For example, if Japan was having a great time in their economy, the U.S. could be in a recession, or Europe could be somewhere in the middle. Meaning, when you look at your equity portfolio, they were really doing different things. If you look at your fixed income portfolio, they were doing different things currencies were maybe much more free and loose and all of that. Nowadays, we have to recognize that the uh, the economic powers of the world are highly, highly synchronized. So the returns we get from these sectors today, or let's put it that way, uh, the, the price moves we get in these financial sectors today are very different from what we used to get. So I can imagine that there is a higher probability today to get a quick reversal. And we see that. We see it with our naked, with the naked eye that when we have a big issue in the U.S., all the other countries of the world follow suit. All the equities sell off. All the bonds, you know, they do their thing. But it's so highly correlated, which is, of course, why we and, 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 and the most people who come on the podcast argues for diversification and not just within the portfolio of, of trend following, uh, meaning we want the commodities, we love the commodities that are the least correlated to um, the, all the other markets we trade, but of course also that trend following should be part of a portfolio that consists of assets or strategies to which it doesn't have much correlation. So I guess my point is, we could go back to the 1990s market conditions. We don't know. We could. We could stay with the way things are today but either way, we should expect that from time to time, drawdowns will be sharp, deep, quick, whatever. Sometimes they'll be long, bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the backtest should show both. And as long as it doesn't, you know, overall spoils the, the picture and that you can't live with it, it's okay. Um, I wouldn't clean it up just because of that reason I actually would expect you you have a bit of both. I like this topic, Niels, and we're not going to get to these other topics we're meant to be talking about today. Well, I know, I know. I, I, like, <laughs> I like this sort of topic because I would say 
that yes, we can do something about them. And and this is a bit of a, an evolution that I've seen in trend following. And this is towards this notion that um, we're not getting the same degree of diversification benefit across markets these days because with all of this fiat money in the system from central bank intervention, uh, all of this floating money rests in all of these financial assets. So all of these commodities, um, currencies, bonds, everything, they're all basically being lifted up by this fiat money and they're all becoming fairly highly correlated. And so we saw in March 2020 this massive um, positive correlation where everything went down together. But this is where I think the likes of Bill Eckhart and and things like that are are sort of uh, evolving towards with this system diversification. Because when when I, for instance, see a a drawdown that is accelerating, I can do something about it. I can um, swap out my systems that are producing. So let's say I've got a fixed universe of markets that produce this equity curve and I see this weakness in the equity curve. So I believe as a risk manager, um, I'm behoved to address every risk weakness I see in my system. And if I see this fast accelerating drawdown, I believe that I should be doing something about it. I can't do anything about my outliers. I must let profits run, but I can do something about my risk. And what I'll do is I will start playing around with my system diversification to see if that changes that profile. Um, So by blasting it with this intense amount of market data, I can see through swapping in and out um, more diversified systems, those that are giving me what I call these co-integration benefits that reduce this impact of correlation. Now, it's inevitably correlation that's causing this fast accelerating drawdown because everything is suddenly positively correlated. And whilst we're cutting losses short with all of our trades, when they're positively correlated, all of our trades are just, we're getting massive numbers of these small hits and our drawdown decreases. However, the system diversification in that, and you, I know you do this with your models, um, probably more you and me, more than say what what, what Jerry does or, or, or what Moritz does, I'm not, not quite sure, but I'd say we do play excessively with this system diversification idea which actually does allow us to manage those risk weaknesses in our equity curve. So that that's what I'd be focusing on if I did see that risk weakness in my backtest. Yeah, okay, so I completely agree that I think it is a good idea to, uh, I mean, I like the classical way of doing trend following. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But as you rightly point out uh, in the uh, top traders trend following model, there is definitely different types of trend following strategies and i've explained that in episode 120 121 of the systematic investor series and went into some details and what the thinking was and so on and so forth so i do think that that makes perfect sense you could say that the idea um that we had back then was really to say okay if you're going to hire five or six different traders to trade your money they all had to be rules-based but they don't have to be all the same so how would you do that and that's essentially what what we've done and it does it does help i think or at least it makes i think it makes a lot of common sense to do it but i don't think if you can avoid um the the, the sharp drawdowns because at some point if the trend is up all the models are going to be long if the trend is down all the models are going to be short and if you have a big reversal from that you know there's no way around it you're going to have it so so i would never do something to try and fix the problem if you know what i mean 
I need to get to a level where I think, okay, I'm comfortable with that and I fully understand why it happens, but I, I don't think you can fix the problem completely. And I don't think we should because we know the future is going to be different from the past. So I think it's more important that you find things that you actually believe in in saying, yeah, if I have a little bit of this kind of short-term reaction type of models over here, I have these long-term trend-following models that are hunting for these uh, outliers, but they also have a, a, a big neutral zone where they don't get whipped around too much. And then you may have something kind of in between. And in my case, you know, um, and, and some people will say, well, that's definitely wrong to do so. But in my case, I recognize the fact that we are better as trend followers to capture profits from long-sided trades, maybe because the, the upside is in, infinite, while the downside of a market, maybe with the exception of oil that actually did go negative last year, but usually it can only go to zero. So we know that there's some kind of limit to that. Also, and this has been my observation from uh, starting out as a trader, is that it takes longer to form a high than it takes to form a low. And therefore, I think we have better, we have more time to capture long-sided trades. All of that, whatever you believe in, it doesn't really matter. But for me, it made logical sense to put together this team of, of models. Um, and it's not to say that the, the end result is vastly different from other types of trend-following strategies or programs, but it's something that at least I'm comfortable with. But as I said again, it has all the hallmarks of the same quote-unquote weaknesses than, than any other trend-following model will have, but I don't see them as a weakness. I see them as this is what it has to look like. For you to hunt for the outliers, you need to accept that there is a price for that, and the price is, is quote-unquote drawdowns or being in a drawdown for most of the time which, by the way, is not unusual with many equities. I, I once saw an article, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was, I can't remember, it was analyzing Amazon or whatever it was, but it was some kind of stock that had gone up, you know, hugely. But actually, when you looked at the daily data, it showed that 90% of the time, it's not at its all-time high, meaning, just like a trend follower, you're in some kind of a drawdown 90% of the time, but still, those 10% where you make new all-time highs ended up giving you fantastic long-term returns, just like trend following has done. So anyways, maybe to round it up, because I think you're right. I think let's not jump into any more things. We've got plenty of things to uh, for people to think about uh, with today's topic. But if we were to think about maybe some, some key uh, stepping stones in a backtest process, for example, maybe the first thing you want to do is you want to think about what is the big idea? What is the thing you want to test? Maybe that's kind of your checklist number one point. Then you also have to define your framework. What are the parameters? You know, what are the slippage? What is the data period you want to, to test, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, if we go through that, I mean, do you have certain things you do in a certain order? Do you have certain things you always want to make sure that you do in a backtest uh, when you create your checklist or whatever we call it? Yes. So uh, what I do is the first thing I do before I do any testing is um, I use a logic design principle to say, what edge is it I'm attempting to target in this market? So I'm not sort of designing systems that uh, are just sort of data mined that, that seem to work without having a logical reason. So 
I apply a, a logical design principle first to say, right, if I'm doing trend following, and I always do trend following, just so we're all clear, <laughs> um, then what I'll do is I'll say, in that design principle, these are the golden rules that must be obeyed. Cut losses short, let profits run, initial stop, trailing stop, no profit target, uh, ATR-based uh, methodology. And then I say, right, they're the golden rules that must be obeyed by every single trend-following system I apply. But now uh, let's develop um, a multiple different array of breakout systems and different forms of trend-following system to give me entry diversification and also allow me to target dis different aspects of the outlier with their different um, initial stops, trailing stops, and entry condition. So I might have, you know, six, five, five models, um, one of which or two of which are breakout models or 10 models, four of which are breakout models. And then I say, right, whatever I do out of this, this entire design principle, I must use a bare minimum of X number of breakout models. I must have that as a particular class of model in my trend-following system, and then the balance must be alternative trend-following models that gives me diversification. Once that's done, then I commence the backtesting phase or the testing phase. What I then do is say, right, I need to hit these models with as much data as I possibly can because I'm of the opinion that there are many paths of uncertainty and that single historic return stream of 40 years I've got is one single path. I need other paths. So I've either got to recreate alternative paths or I use multi-markets, different markets um, over that same time frame to then hit those models with as much different data as I can. Once that's achieved, that is my robustness test of the process, um, what I regard as robustness. Then what I say is, right, all of the models that pass that robustness test and I use risk-adjusted metrics to identify the successful candidates. I'm not looking at profits. I'm not looking at profit factor. I'm looking at risk-adjusted metrics such as the MAR ratio, which is a compound annual growth rate over the max draw drawdown. Um, I use that as a basis to say, right, on a on a pound-for-pound pound, um, reward-to-risk relationship, what is the best ones to use? So that means that I know that they're catching outliers, but I also know that they're not getting eaten up with the costs of adverse volatility. So then once I've got that robustness phase completed, I then go into, and, and I know Jerry's not going to like this, but this is where I have an adaptive component because I'm a firm believer in the need to have some adaptive component in my testing to ensure that uh, my models slowly, slowly um, adapt with the nature of the market. So trends have changed um, since the 1970s. And I'm saying that, well, outliers actually haven't changed, but what has changed is the noise and mean reversion that exists in the market from increased participation in a market from all of these different behaviours. Trends are harder to catch these days than they were with short-term models. Now we've got to step out with longer models. Now, an adaptive process would pick that up rather than a discretionary, oh, what's going wrong with my models? I need to change something. Oh, let's step out into the longer timeframes. I'm using an adaptive empirical process to say, this is what the data is telling me, so I must do something about it. I'm not making any form of haphazard judgment that might be wrong or might be biased in my opinion. So I'm using this, what I call a recency phase, to look at the last 10-year window, it's a rolling window, for all of my models, uh, which then says, 
Right, out of those last 10 years, have there been any outliers in those periods? If I can identify outliers in those periods, uh, then I want my models to be able to catch them. Um, and this is where my, 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 my data mining process um, over extensive data sets, but over a 10-year horizon, slowly adapts the models. So they become from short-term to long-term in nature. But it's not a quick adaption. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's one where um, my collection of return streams in my portfolio that I get at the end have passed two things. Robustness is an essential requirement, and it's a contingent state, and recency. So there's robustness and adaptivity in my models. If they meet both criteria, it's not a robustness or recency, they must just test all of the ones that pass the robustness tests are then further fine refined with this and statement to get also they have this adaptive component in them, which shows that they are better addressing trends of today than they were with trends of 1980 or trends of 1970. Provided that's a, a 10-year rolling window that slowly moves forward, I know that I can keep my portfolios razor sharp. Now, I do this process annually. So at the end of each year that I do this robustness and recency phase, I then totally replace, well, I totally replace all of my models with what has been generated from the robustness and recency phase with this additional 12 months of data to all of this prior data and method that I've applied. So therefore, this adaptive notion is integrating itself into the data. And uh, I'm finding that now, when I say I replace my models, it's not a uh, it's not a rebalancing exercise here. I'm not doing a rebalancing, but let's say at the end of 12 months, I've got um, 76 current open trades of my models. I let them play out because I let profits run. All I do is I prevent them to, from taking any further trades. Then I overlay the complete new suite of um, 12 month models into my program. So. I believe that process is what I call keeping my backtest razor sharp, keeping my portfolio razor sharp. It's, it's saying, I don't want discretion in my judgment about what's working. I want the data to tell me a story, integrate that into my models. Uh, and, and so that, that's my process I adopt for my, my backtest. A bit long-winded, pretty data-intensive, but that, that sort of outlines the process. No, I like that. And that's something that I can recognize from the, the place that I work. Not exactly the same way, of course, but and when you say you replace the models, uh, I don't know whether you're just saying, well, actually, I allow the models to recalibrate themselves and pick new parameter sets. It's not really new models; it's just different parameters. At least that's what 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 we do on on our side. We allow the models to uh, kind of reconfirm uh, parameter based on, as you say, more recent data rather than data that may not really be that applicable uh, anymore. So I think that kind of makes sense. But I will also say, I can also see um, that it works perfectly fine to stay with fixed set of parameters as long as you have many combinations to begin with. I'm, I don't know whether you can say one is better than the other. It's different. And again, it's it's down to your personal preference, what you do and and what kind of complexity uh, you want to have in your model. And and how how essentially how automated you can create these things because some of this stuff sounds complicated but nowadays it can all be done um, pretty much with a click of a button so yeah no I like that idea one thing that's again people need to consider when they do back testing I think it's worth maybe not necessarily throw everything into the same test I mean you might want to see if you're using especially if you're using things like filtering 
you might want to do the test filter by filter to see what the actual impact is on a filter. And if it isn't a big impact, I would say maybe it's better to leave it out because what you want to put into your system at the end of the day is something that has a significant benefit to it. And also it goes with hand in hand with what we're trying to do in general, and that is get rid of the stuff that is is not necessary and therefore keeping it simple. As Jerry would say, one entry, one exit, one stop. Okay, that's maybe, that's the bare minimum. Uh, maybe there's one or two extra bells and whistles you want to put on. Um, but in general, that's certainly what, what we prefer to do. And then obviously, once you've done that and you've used all your ensemble uh, data and testing, you want to use data that the model hasn't seen, see what it does, what it looks like. Ideally, you want to then, as as I was saying, I've been doing now for eight years, and that is you want to run it as a live forward test. You want to see that it continues to work as you would expect it to do. Probably people don't want to do that for eight years, but at least for some period of time, I think you should do it before you switch to a real market environment with real money and so on and so forth. And then, of course, um, when you do switch, as we were talking about initially in our conversation today, when we were answering the question from Louis, when you do switch to a live environment with real money, start small, um, there's no rush. This is a 50-year game for those of you who are clever enough to start early. And for some, it's a 10-year game. Too late for me, Niels. (laughs) Well... Life expectancy, uh, Rich, is going to increase dramatically, I hear. No, no. But yeah, I mean, of course, one needs to take that into account as well. But this is, of course, why, and 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 I think this is what we're going to be talking about also next time, is these the, the wonders of compound effect. I mean, if you can do trend following for 50 years, like Don has almost done, 47 years and still going, I mean, the compound effect is absolutely tremendous. Same with Jerry's long-term track record. It's absolutely fantastic, and it's impossible to beat, I think, really by any other strategy. So anyways, let's leave that for now. I also think we're going to talk about things like skew probably next time, and that's another interesting topic and and the role it plays. Let me quickly run through a couple of performance numbers. My trend barometer actually, even though it was a strong week for us, I noticed that the trend barometer weakened a little bit further. It closed at 37, which is actually kind of a weak level, even though when I look at the performance data, it was positive. So interesting uh, divergence, let's put it that way. But I did note that uh, in terms of the trend following indices, they are still down for the month, down 53 basis points for beta 50. This is as of Thursday before the uh, everything rally that happened yesterday. So maybe the numbers are a little bit better by by close of business uh, yesterday. Um, but as of Thursday, the beta 50 was up 6.89% for the year. Sockgen CTA index down 1.02% for the month, up 5.73 for the year. Sockgen trend index down 51 basis points, up 7.47 for the year. And the Sockgen short-term traders index down 1.12%, up 41 basis points for the year. Of course, we know New record in many equities that also has helped MSCI World up 2.1% for the year. Sorry, for the month, up 16.49% for the year. Hard to keep up with. The bonds, although they have come off this month, down 21 basis points so far. On that note, I think we're going to wrap up this conversation. I mean, Rich and I could have gone on for a long time um, because it is such a fascinating topic so um you know i'm sure we'll we'll come back to this um as well as 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 with some of the other 
people and the podcast, of course. Um, we'll hear what will it'll be interesting to see what their thoughts are on this. Moritz is uh, the first one to give his thoughts. He's back next week. We will be recording a day later next weekend uh, due to some scheduling. So expect the podcast to come out uh, Monday, I would say. As I also mentioned earlier, we would love to receive a few more rating and reviews, not just a few, actually quite a lot more rating and reviews because it really helps. It makes the the algorithm uh, propose the podcast to new listeners. And as usual, you should send your questions to uh, to us, info at toptradersonplug.com. We do our best to bring them up on the uh, following recording. And it makes it more fun, I think, when we have questions from you because if it, it helps us, as I mentioned, figure out what really is important to you. And, and I think it's fair to say that we try to make it a listener-driven podcast. So from Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until that time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.